Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. Uh, it's all kicking off in Cornwall before the G7's even got underway. News that Joe Biden has issued an extraordinary uh, diplomatic rebuke to Boris Johnson. Uh, we'll uh, talk about that in our big thing on the podcast. We've got Patrick Maguire, who broke the story, plus Lewis Lukins, a former American diplomat to uh, the UK, and Sir Peter Westmacott, former British ambassador in the US, unpicking that row and what it all means ahead of the G7 in Cornwall. Tomorrow's episode of the podcast will come from Cornwall. It'll be very exciting. Uh, <laughs> but first, uh, we kick off with our co- our columnist panel. It's Thursday, so it must be nice of the Marriott. It's India Night and James Marriott. Now, James, before we begin, because I'm not doing the show from the studio today because I'm halfway to Cornwall. Well, I'm basically at home, uh, which is nearer to get to Cornwall. You're sitting in the big chair again, aren't you? I'm sitting in your big chair and it's fantastic. I, I feel completely in charge of everything now. Well, you carry on then. Do you want to just take it, take take things from here? No. <laughs> I'm <laughs> handing it back to you on second thoughts. <laughs> we, are, we will start with you, though, because we'll start with your column today, which is fascinating because it's exactly the sort of thing which... Uh, gets people going, as I noticed there was sort of hundreds and hundreds of comments on it already today. You're suggesting that the the culture war might be running out of steam, which anyone who's seen the front pages about photos of the Queen uh, being put up or not put up in rooms that people can or can't go into, uh, um, explain why you think the the steam might be, the, the, the culture war might be slightly deflating. So maybe maybe running out of steam is putting it a bit strong, but my kind of my, I'm completely fascinated by the culture war um, because it's something I remember watching it sort of. I think it really exploded in 2014, and I remember being at university and watching that kind of happen seemingly out of nowhere. Um, The kind of basic theory of my column is that we've since the kind of Second World War we've had a kind of few of these culture wars, and they burn very fiercely for maybe like I, I think about a decade, and then they kind of then they begin to decline again. So I kind of think it all started in the 60s where basically we started um, as a society, and especially in America, having these huge arguments about um, identity and race. And obviously in America, that was the kind of, that was part of the kind of social revolution of the 60s. Um, And then I think it was interesting. So kind of late 70s, early 80s, you get a kind of backlash. Um, In the UK, we had this thing that we called reactionary chic, which is all about Sloan Rangers. And it was kind of cool to be posh. And all that kind of people used to refer to the kind of social worker speak of the kind of um, late 60s and early 70s was incredibly uncool. That all went out of fashion. And then lo and behold, 10 years later, in um, in the early 90s, we had this kind of, we had another big bust up about politically correct language in universities um and then that kind of that went away in the early 2000s when i was a teenager when you talk about how kind of apolitical and boring teenagers were and how we never kind of <laughs> fought about anything and then lo and behold i arrived at university and then suddenly it all kicked off again about these kind of similar issues that i think all kind of date back to the 60s and i think it's this sort of cycle we've been going through so i mean i'm not saying it's necessarily running out of steam now but i just it's not going to last forever and i wouldn't be surprised if we were kind of if we were at the kind of peak peak saturation of the culture wars, the interesting thing I thought because I, 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 I thought was your your history lesson was interesting. I wondered whether does it run out of steam because those slightly annoying young people end up either being proved right or becoming the adults of the time. So the things that seemed controversial at the time become. Uh, the new normal, that horrible phrase. Uh, and so is it a sort of, 
you know, it starts off as a sort of fringe thing. It becomes a bit more mainstream. And then ultimately, that's just the, the accepted worldview. And then some more young people come along and they, they have their new extreme views and it becomes more normalised. Yeah, I think that's I think that's extremely, and that's an extremely good point. And I sort of wish I'd said that in my column that I think the kind of... Um, <laughs> you can go online and show <laughs> So I can it, talk right? to you. Yeah, maybe I'm just going to update it from my desk here. I'll talk to you before so the next one. a live vlog. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I think, you're, I think you're completely right. And I, I think basically that... You know, I mean, I think the big example is think of the complete revolution in attitudes um, about gay rights, which was a huge kind of cultural issue back in, you know, the 80s and the 90s um, and was really kind of was quite controversial. You know, the public, when surveyed, it was like, you know, I, I think it was like a majority, you know, opposed various gay rights positions. Now it's something that is almost universally accepted in society. And that's just been this huge sort of cultural revolution. The flip side of that is I think there will be other parts of these kind of cultural battles that are that are not adopted. Um, so you kind of think of those kind of language battles in the 90s. We took some of the kind of politically correct language that everyone used to mock. Um, and I remember having children's books now as a kid in the in the 90s that would like, you know, um, say how funny it was that you couldn't call someone fat. You had to call them circumferentially challenged or whatever. <laughs> and um, a lot of that stuff, a lot of that stuff hasn't lasted, although it's kind of being resurrected now. So we kind of, we take a bit we take, I guess, hopefully some of the good bits and we leave some of the bad bits, I think, and we kind of move forward in that kind of uh, push and pull fashion is my is my optimistic is my optimistic take. Um, as sick as I am at the moment of all these endless sort of, I think, very bad faith arguments about all this stuff about, you know, pictures of the Queen, as you say, in whichever room and, you know, who can look at it and... Who oh, can't? I was struck this morning, I, I did uh, tweet this earlier. If, if, if Twitter banned all mentions of the portrait of the Queen... And the fact that Boris Johnson flew to Cornwall uh, to talk about climate change, they could turn off half their service. There's sort of two, <laughs> like two groups of furious people who all think they're making a brilliant new point about something, neither of which really matter remotely. Um, India, are you confident that the culture war is fizzling out? I really, really, really hope so because it's become so boring and also so silly. I mean, I think the point at which people switch off because things just seem too silly is a good indicator of a kind of general petering out. Um, so I really hope that happens. I mean, I've, I've been around for many of the decades that um, James name checks in his excellent column. And what I would say, the, the difference now is that at all those stages in the uh, 80s and 90s and 2000s, it was possible to have dialogue, you know, you 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 might have quite heated dialogue and you might have quite cross conversations, but the conversa everybody was invited to the conversation. If they wanted to be in the conversation, then they were welcome to take part, whatever side they sat on. What's extraordinary to me about the current situation is that you're not allowed to speak un you know, unless <laughs> unless you occupy a particular position, which is really weird and extraordinary and and results in people feeling much angrier <clears throat> in private than they've ever done before i think so it's really odd i hope that goes away because that seems to me to be the thing that's new the kind of you are either with us or you are banned forever from everything it does it does strike me as well the extent to and you know and the times has done this is lots of papers on this day putting these stories about the queen's portrait 
mm. on on the front pages. Mm. Presumably, far you know, thinking it fires people up. I, my my general sense is that isn't the, the the most British response to all these things is sort of roll your eyes. Yeah. And uh, to what extent is the culture war really? You know, we've talked about this a lot. We've looked at polling, both on the words culture war, but also on some of the specifics. And it, it just doesn't on a lot of these things. This isn't what people are. Thinking and talking about, and when we've run focus groups, we've oh, not really thought very not much really about positive. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the really interesting thing about that is, I think culture wars have always been this kind of thing for, you know, um, in inverted commas, elites or people who are really plugged into the political conversation, people in the media, people in politics. Mm-hmm. But the kind of the kind of weird flip side of that is that that doesn't mean they don't matter. So. Um, I think in the 60s, all that stuff about, you know, all the kind of all the debates about free love and, um, you know, changing social mores in the 60s. Uh, when they surveyed people out in the out in the country and they surveyed ordinary people, people were generally hostile. They thought the kind of rioting students were idiots. They weren't that interested in the sexual revolution. And yet a lot of those social changes still still kind of occurred, which is the kind of weird paradox is that, you know, I think even if everybody isn't aware there is such a thing as, you know, in inverted commas, the culture war you know, that doesn't mean these social changes don't happen eventually. And um, it is it does seem to be this kind of weird paradoxical thing that people, they are able to be led by the people at the top who are able to have these arguments and they actually do end up being influential because I guess those people have a lot of, you know, power over our cultural attitudes and things. Um, that's the thing else I find interesting. I think, as you were saying, the good stuff trickles through anyway, sort of, you know, the, the good stuff percolates, is sort of quietly absorbed by people and the crazy stuff is sort of left on the pavement as everybody drives away um and i think that i think we might be at that point mm, yeah a lot of the stuff that, that it, a lot of the stuff that james talks about in the sort of pc gone mad stuff of the 90s is now just accepted polite behavior yeah, yeah uh, exactly. and now woke woke has just become well this is one of these original definition woke has just become the new pc gone mad oh you're being woke when you're suggesting that it's there's no harm in being polite to people um uh, now, India, I want to talk to you ahead of the G7 this weekend because you've 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 holidayed exactly where Boris Johnson's taking all these world leaders. I have for, for many many decades. Well, more since I was in Carbis Bay, we went to Carbis Bay a couple of times. That's a very nice walk, actually, which you might do tomorrow, uh, Matt, uh, from Carb. A nice sort of wooded walk along the coast from Carbis Bay to St Ives, and and it's also worth taking the little train because it's really pretty it's the it takes five minutes it's the prettiest train journey but i can't get i mean it's completely surreal it's like the g7 taking place in i don't know a cottage in hampstead i mean it's just really really odd but but also really really nice there's something quite kind of <laughs> there's something quite sort of pleasantly homemade about it you know it's so the opposite of a giant soulless faceless hotel somewhere soulless and faceless and i like the idea of carrie taking um jill biden to st michael's mount hope and hope they don't get cut off by the tide because that happens quite easily <laughs> um, but, um but yeah it's really odd and sort of charming i think sort of charming yeah. so i uh i was looking this morning um uh the telegraph has, has done a sort of uh piece about the hotel that they're staying at which the uh, Politico uh, email. I was just trying to find. They described it as for the elite. The Telegraph has an inside look at the mad posh Tregenna Castle Resort, where the world leaders will be staying. Uh, and a friend of mine got in touch and said that uh, they went to a wedding at this mad posh elite hotel once, where the uh, wedding cake was covered in black spots to make it look like a cow. So I think uh, some nice. people's idea, 
<laughs> Sounds very nice. I've been to weddings like that. They, they are a lot of fun. But I'm not sure that necessarily is what people think of when they're told it's a mad posh elite No, retreat. I wouldn't call that hotel mad posh in any shape or form. But maybe it's had a giant emergency makeover. It may well have done. I, unfortunately, I don't think I'm going to get very near uh, said hotel. Although I'm going to see the delights of Falmouth instead, which is where they are putting all the media and uh, uh, down, down there tomorrow. James, would you like to be down there? What would you What would, what would you be uh, uh, doing if you could rub shoulders with the world leaders in this mad posh hotel? Oh my God! Well, I mean, I'd love to try that. I'd love to try the cow cake. Um... That sounds like it might be the next Colin the Caterpillar. Yeah, I mean, I think I've actually gone about gone on about this before. That I went to Cornwall for the first time um, quite recently uh, to visit my sister who lives there now, and I'm completely converted to thinking it's like the most beautiful place in the world. It's very dramatic as well. I think all those dramatic coastlines. Um, it's very, you know, it's, it's where Poldark was filmed, and I think it's a kind of good backdrop for a for a G7 conference. And when they have their big rows about, you know, who's demarched who and rebuked who, they can sort of go for. I, I like to imagine kind of lonely, angry walks along the cliff tops with the wind, you know, ruffling their hair, <laughs> staring yes, out at sea, thinking how incredibly unfair it is. I think it'll really add to the drama of the experience. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, as someone who who spent his childhood holidaying in Cornwall, I have a very strange relationship. I'm, I'm, I like it much more now. The rainy. Rain, rain on the roof of your tent for weeks on end, mm. slightly less. Uh, but when the sun's out, you can't, there's nowhere better in the world. There's nowhere better in the world. Um, now, one thing that is going to be on the menu, if you'll excuse the pun, uh, is obviously all this stuff to do with the Northern Ireland Protocol, which if you say Northern Ireland Protocol, everyone switches off. It sounds incredibly dull. If you say British sausages, <laughs> it suddenly becomes the latest war. Well, it's always part of the culture war. James, why is the, why is the great British sausage such a, 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 a sort of iconic thing that people get so cross about? Yeah, I, I mean, what fascinates me about it is how, how much it seems thematically linked to the very early days of Boris Johnson's careers with all his, you know, story when he was writing those stories for Brussels about bendy bananas and, you know, was it cucumbers and all the ways that you can sort of have these <laughs> fruit in particular shapes. And it seems only fitting that his career, which started with silly stories about food, is now kind of culminating in what is, you know, at once a very... Um, serious and also slightly silly story i think you are right i think you're kind of hinting that maybe the sausage has a kind of patriotic implication um it's a kind of constituent <laughs> part of the full english breakfast um and maybe we feel that all all people in the uk have a right to have sausages in their in their full english breakfast and maybe that's what is causing the uh maybe that's what's causing tensions <laughs> to get so heated yeah i wonder if it was um I wonder if it was avocados or I'm trying to think of a less sort of um patriotic food uh yes, whether it would be quite right. as if, angry if, if, yeah, well, I suppose it might be a different contingent. If avocados couldn't get through, then it becomes an entirely, uh, you know, a different part of the culture war gets um, um, uh, electrified by that. Um, India, we'll, we'll end on your thoughts on sausages. <laughs> I'm just wondering, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm just wondering if Americans have sausages, proper sausages, bangers. And I kind of sure don't they think do. they, they do, They have those horrible actually. sort of boiled hot doggy things. Yeah, they don't have, you know, an honest British sausage. It's very funny, the idea of the kind of martial symbolic totemic sausage um but i think that is i think that is what 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 sausages are they represent the as you say a very useful shorthand to grab people's interest and make them feel furious um on behalf of the eu which is behaving slightly strangely because clearly i mean it seems to me i say clearly i have no idea because i also sort of zone out slightly but um but clearly this is about food standards and clearly Everybody, the whole EU knows that there's the British UK food standards are rather higher than everybody else's. So you know, let the, let the sausage free, let the sausage roam. I say, I understand that. <laughs> I understand that if the sausage roams, then everything else has to roam too, and that that becomes more complicated. But it does seem 
a bit of a kind of, it's sort of politics rather than sensibleness, isn't it? India Knight and James Merritt there, and you can uh, read them both in The Times and The Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription from thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, that big round between Boris Johnson and Joe Biden. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Red Box Podcast. Now, let's turn our attention to this diplomatic row between Boris Johnson and Joe Biden that risks overshadowing the G7 summit. The US president arrived in the UK last night, shortly after the landing, and, but Joe Biden addressed a crowd of US military personnel at an RAF base in Suffolk, where, at least publicly, he was lauding the special relationship. The US and the UK are both founding members of NATO, the strongest military and political alliance in the history of the world. Our troops have stood shoulder to shoulder around the world, including serving bravely in the mountains of Afghanistan for the past 20 years. That was Joe Biden last night, giving the public impression that we were great friends. Within a few hours, the Times broke the story that privately the U.S. had ordered a diplomatic rebuke known as a demarche to the U.K. for putting the Northern Ireland peace process in jeopardy. Uh, over Brexit. Uh, let's speak to Patrick Maguire, first of all, Red Box editor who broke the story. Hi, Patrick. Morning, Matt. Uh, first of all, explain how, because um, there's lots of sort of terms used in this, how significant is this? How unusual is this? And what form did the rebuke take? Well, a day marsh, um, and my esteemed co-panellists will in time be able to perhaps share the experience of giving or if not receiving one hopefully not receiving one, is a sort of formal instruction, uh, outline of a position, a reprimand, if you will, given from one, a representative of one government to another. Um, a little bit like, a, you know, to use the diplomatic jargon, a, a meeting without coffee. But usually <laughs> you summon the ambassador of, you call in the ambassador of anniversary. For instance, it's a sort of in the Times copy this morning, we referenced, um, you know, Dominic Raab calling in the, Belarusian ambassador, for instance, to summon an ally. And indeed, the US Charge of Affairs, Yale Lamp uh, Lampert, told uh, Lord Frost, who she 
requested a meeting with this. Very unusual and notable for an ally to uh, basically read the Riot Act to another ally. Um, and indeed, Joe Biden vetoed uh, an attempt by uh, US officials to do this to China fairly recently. So for this to happen with the buy-in of the White House to Britain is a reflection of the intense frustration in the White House at our position <clears throat> on Northern Ireland. Okay, let's bring in. Like you said, we've got a couple of people who who, who know better than anyone uh, at the uh, exactly the diplomatic niceties of uh, all this. Uh, Lewis Lukins uh, was acting U.S. ambassador to Britain is now a senior partner with uh, Signum Global Advisors. Morning, Lewis. Good morning, Matt. And, and crucially, you were the you you held the role that Yale Lampert uh, uh, now holds, who was the person who, who issued this rebuke. Correct. Yeah, four years ago. Fantastic. So we've got you. And plus, uh, on the other side of the fence, Sir Peter Westmacott, who was Britain's man, Britain's British ambassador to the United States uh, from 2012 until 2016. Hi, Peter. Hello. Morning, Matt. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. So, Lewis, um, did you ever have reason to issue one of these demarches before? What's the significance of them? Well, demarches are actually fairly routine, right? It's just a way that we formally present an opinion or ask for support from from a government. So we use them a lot for things like candidates for international organizations or things like that. What's, what's unique about this instance, I think, is that it was given at the, at the highest level and that it came just a week before Joe Biden's visit. So I think it was clearly trying to put out there, which was no should be no surprise to anybody, by the way, that Joe Biden and the American administration is about the Good Friday peace agreements and what happens with northern the northern Irish border. And so what's what's the actual process of it? Because we sometimes hear about, uh, you know, the uh, uh, UK government summoning an ambassador that has to go and see uh, the foreign secretary in the foreign office to, for a ticking off. How would how does this actually work in, in practice? So the embassy would call the, the, the person in the British government and say, we have a de- formal demarche to deliver and would request the meeting. And I'm sure that's what happened in this case. And the, the charge requested the meeting with uh, Mr. Frost and went in there and said, look, I've been asked by Washington to present this paper to you, these talking points. And then she did that. Uh, and clearly nothing would happen at the British embassy, uh, the, the US embassy in London without the, 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 the express wishes of Joe Biden in the White House. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the US um, team traveling with the president seems to be putting out this morning that, you know, he wasn't really aware of this and he wasn't involved and he may not personally have been involved. But a demarche like this would not have been sent from Washington to the embassy in London without some interagency approval and certainly someone at the White House and the National Security Council being very aware of it. Okay, uh, so Peter Westmacott, when you were British ambassador in Washington, did you ever have to deliver one of these? Deliver a démarche quite like that? I don't think so. But, you know, we don't always use that formal label. I know it's got a, a bit of traction this morning in the news reports. But quite often, yes, I would be asked to make particular points to members of the U.S. administration. And uh, I might be called in as an ally when I was ambassador in other countries with which we were closely associated. So it's not a it's not a huge deal. And as Lou says, I think the substance of this with written talking points, and I'm sure I'm sure Yale handed over uh, her note, is not a surprise because even before he became president, we had tweets both from the then president-elect and from his uh, future Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, 
making very plain that for the incoming president, the integrity of the Good Friday Agreement uh, and the stability of political and economic life on the island of Ireland was a very high priority for Joe Biden. And he's made that clear to us over many years. I've written about it, talked about it. It's not a surprise. So I think this is really making clear that he's bothered about the way it's going and bothered about the way in which the British government appears to be reluctant to implement an agreement which it freely negotiated. Lewis, could you explain to to listeners why the American interest in Irish affairs uh, quite so, and um, I mean, American politics generally, but also particularly this, this president? Well, I mean, the, the United States has a stake and was, was incredibly instrumental in, in, in sort of negotiating and developing the Good Friday peace agreements and was, has always been very invested in, in Northern Irish and Irish politics. The Irish have a huge caucus in American uh, on, on Capitol Hill. Um, the, the, the president himself is, is very aligned with Ireland. And that's no secret. But there are lots of members of the Senate and Congress who are also very feel, who feel very close to Ireland. And so this was always going to be, as Peter said, this was always going to be a sticking point in, in any future U.S.-U.K. trade agreement. Um, there, the, Nancy Pelosi is another one, very, very focused on the border and what happens there. Um, so this is, you know, the United States has, has always been very invested in the political and security situation in Northern Ireland. Well, let's take a listen because Greg Hans was the trade minister who was uh, drew the short straw and had to come out and try and explain that absolutely everything was totally fine this morning. He was on Times Ready Breakfast this morning and was asked whether the UK was as committed to the Good Friday Agreement as the US is demanding. We agree with the United States on the importance of preserving the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, don't forget the United States is a, is a guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, was a Senator George Mitchell, who's one of Joe Biden's closest associates in the US Senate, uh, was one of the key uh, people making sure that the Good Friday Agreement um, happened. That is the most important thing. That's what we've said all the way through is preserving the Good Friday Agreement, preserving the peace in Northern Ireland. A key part of that is making sure that Northern Irish customers and businesses can continue uh, to have access um, to products from the United Kingdom. So the fact that, say, sausages made in Birmingham will be reaching um, Tesco's and Sainsbury's in Belfast, that is not a threat to the European Union or health in the European Union. Uh, so that's uh, Greg Hand saying, insisting everything will be totally fine. Uh, Peter Westmacott, part of the problem with this is that sometimes it can get very complicated. You get into protocols and demarches and, and all of that. But ultimately, if the UK is outside the EU, there is a border between us and them. Uh, but if the Good Friday Agreement says there can't be a border between Northern Ireland and uh, the Republic of Ireland, the border has to go somewhere. Well, yes, <laughs> and I think I think that's the problem. Uh, the The Johnson administration, with David Frost uh, in the thick of it, renegotiated an arrangement which Theresa May's team had put together, which she couldn't get through Parliament. And one of the sticking points was the different arrangement that she had made, with a lot of you know technical uh, barriers instead of physical barriers to trade. It was very complex, and anyway, people had decided they didn't like her withdrawal agreement. And so it was redone, and the Prime Minister decided he didn't really need proper parliamentary scrutiny. It was pushed through very quickly. But a lot of people who know about this stuff realised that they were storing up a problem, because if there wasn't going to be a hard border on the island, then there clearly had to be some kind of a border between the island of Ireland, or the north, and the rest of the United Kingdom, Great Britain. And now what's happening is that's turned out to be problematic. 
and the UK government is complaining that people are being jurist and literal and difficult and inflexible. And the European side is saying you simply have to implement the protocol that you guys negotiated and which was the basis of a key basis of the withdrawal agreement. So it's a, it is a bit of a problem. Uh, there may be ways in which you can be a bit more flexible and, and eliminate some of the bumps, whether it's about sausages or whether it's about other stuff. <laughs> But there is a problem, as you and you put your finger on it. If there isn't going to be a border on the island of Ireland, and that is absolutely a no-no in the context of the Good Friday Agreement, to which President Biden is is deeply attached, as is everybody else, then there's got to be some kind of a of, of a similar border between Northern Ireland, because it's now part of the single market, and the Great Britain, which is not. So that's the that's the circle we have to square. Yes. Somebody suggested uh, using what, what they call the square sausage. Uh, that was the, the um, large, large <laughs> sausage. Uh, that, yeah, that was that was that was sold. The, sold that would definitely square the circle. Uh, Patrick McGaw, what's been the reaction to your story this morning? Have you heard more about um, how tense things uh, currently are? Well, uh, I'd said it's been a mixed bag, Matt. Obviously, as Lewis <laughs> alluded to before, um, slightly curious line from the American to. Um, deny every aspect of the story other than that uh, uh, you know President Biden uh, President Biden had had direct buy-in but given that the uh, you know the head of mission at the US embassy was directly ventriloquizing Joe Biden and the entire point of the conversation was to um, impress upon Lord Frost just how deeply aggravated Joe Biden was by his behavior um, you know, accurate representation of his views, I think. Interestingly, I heard from someone quite senior in number 10 last night that um, there is a school of thought inside government that's quite happy for this to be out there uh, on the morning of the G7, as counterintuitive as that seems, right? Because um, <laughs> it's all, we're talking about this and we're not talking about, for instance, Boris Johnson's op-ed in the Times or his new Atlantic charter. But I think there is a little bit of feeling of relief because the Americans have responded um, by seeking to uh, dial it down a little bit. There's clearly no appetite to properly derail um, the summit. And in a way, it's got a very difficult conversation out there before the summit begins. That's not to say uh, you know, Ursula von der Leyen and others won't return to it on Friday and Saturday because they will and they've already said so. Um, but I think there is a feeling with, in, among some people in number 10, perhaps the uh, incurable optimists inside there, I'm sure they still exist, uh, well, you know, my WhatsApp, uh, my WhatsApp attestant is still existing, remarkably. Um, think maybe as much as people weren't expecting or particularly enjoyed reading this on the front page of the Times this morning, that they might, uh, that they might, they, this might be the, have been the best course of action. And I suppose then everyone will have to be make make very publicly clear that they're all getting on uh, famously. Uh, Lewis, what do you think uh, Boris Johnson and Joe Biden will be planning to do then for the next few days to to you know obviously still make their own points, but make sure that this doesn't completely derail what was supposed to be a if not a a, a love in and the start of a bromance, but certainly showing that both of them could uh, you know get on with each other. Well, first of all, I think they they will get on with each other. And I think what they'll do is they'll focus on this new um, version, you know, the Atlantic Charter 2.0, and they will they will want to draw attention to the issues that they really care about and want to work together on, which are addressing climate change, addressing the next stage of recovery from the pandemic, including a global vaccination plan, um, dealing with the rise of autocratic governments around the world. Um, you know, Joe Biden is very, very passionate about trying to save democracy, and including in the United States, where it's a bit under threat right now. 
um, but also globally. And, and you know, this is mostly focused on dealing with the rise of China, but not only with China. Um, so, you know, pandemic China, COVID, um, climate change, there's, there's plenty for them to talk about. And what about you, Peter? What's the common ground from the, 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 the Boris Johnson could be looking? If you were advising him uh, this morning, what would you suggest he should be doing? Well, the first thing I'd just say is I, I don't think this is a very helpful headline to have. And I do wonder, you know, who on the British side leaked what appears to be the UK version of the conversation with the US charge d'affaires. I, I I Patrick, is... do you want to tell us? <laughs> no. Uh, no, well, look, uh, I, it, you know, it'll be a, an all the presidents men scenario. Maybe Deep Throat will come out in forty years, but not exactly. Now, I'm right? not actually asking you to name your sources on air. <laughs> no, I'm just <laughs> sorry. I, but... I, I just don't think it's a. I think what probably the government would have rather had is lots of talk about the, uh, the the renovated Atlantic Charter and all the huge number of things that the UK and the US are going to be able to do together, putting a bit of flesh on the bones of the concept of global Britain, which people have been rubbing their heads, rubbing, scratching their heads a bit about for some time now. I don't think this is the best story. I mean, it's better than having stories about whether the special relationship still exists or not, which was, you know, another potential risk in some of the language that's been out there. But I think it's, I think it's a pity. And, and what was, what struck me last night listening to the president's remarks at RAF Mildenhall was just how deep the alliance is between the two countries. I mean, most people have forgotten, for example, and Biden was alluding a bit to this, that uh, on the eve of D-Day in 1944, you know, we had two million American servicemen on our islands you know, ready to join in with the rest of the British Empire services to go and liberate Europe and, and win the war. It's it's a quite extraordinary history. And that's why we've still got places like Mildenhall and Leek and Heath and you know, other bases in the United Kingdom, which are populated by uh, the highest level of, of US servicemen and equipment. And I think that's a, an important backcloth to the way in which the UK is trying to you know, reposition itself and carrier strike forces heading east and so on. So I think this is a, a kind of sideshow. What they will be wanting to talk about, first, first of all, of course, a uh, personal relationship because they don't know each other yet. I think they will want to be talking about how are we going to deal with the you know the big beasts out there, China and, and to a lesser extent Russia, which is a more perhaps short-term irritant, but still an issue with a lot of malevolent potential. And what are we going to do to beef up NATO? And and what are we going to do to deal with some of the more traditional foreign policy issues which are out there? Like you know, are we going to get an Iran deal put back together or not? In which the U.S. and U.K. have have a, a very common interest in trying to sort out that that mixed bag of different issues relating to Iran. So there's lots to do the climate change agenda before uh, COP26 at the end of the year. And I don't think people will want to spend too much time on this particular uh, note, even though the EU members who are going to be there, both the ones from the Commission and the Council and the European heads of state, will, I think, um, be wanting to say firmly to the Prime Minister, even though he said, let's not waste our time talking about the protocol, they will want to say, come on, guys, we've got to get this sorted out. And they're going to have the United States president um, batting for their team on that issue. Yeah, Boris Johnson might feel a bit ganged up on uh, when they uh, when they uh, start having their meetings. We've been talking about uh, gifts and the exchange of gifts. We know that Boris Johnson's planning to give um, uh, Joe Biden a, uh, I think it's a photo of a mural, and they're, they're giving uh, the first lady, a Daphne du Maurier, um, first edition. But th these things could be quite fraught. In time, we were talking about when uh, Gordon Brown gave Barack Obama a very um, thoughtful gift of an ornamental pen holder, hand-carved from the... Uh, anti-slavery ship HMS Gannett and uh, uh, Barack Obama gave him 25 DVDs he couldn't play on a DVD player in the UK. Um, 
Lewis Lukins, Peter Westmacott, you must have been involved in these discussions before. You've had visits, you know, in both directions. Th- these things are, can be can be fought, can't they? How much thought goes into them, Lewis? A lot of thought goes into it, and there's a, there's a whole office in the State Department, the protocol office, that deals with these gifts. And what, what I'm curious to see is not only what the president gives uh, the prime minister, uh, but he's seen the queen this weekend shortly after her birthday. And um, that's another gift, which is which a lot of time will be spent on. Is What does the president give the queen when he sees her? Uh, that's a really interesting question. And does he manage to um, abide by some of the protocol uh, that, that, that Donald Trump perhaps uh, didn't quite so much? Uh, what about you, Pete, uh, Peter Westmacott? Can when, uh, well, give, give and go wrong? It, it's hugely difficult. I, I once gave um, Joe Biden, when he was the vice president, uh, a copy of a book I'd had uh, bound and, and, and printed for him, which was written by his British great-great-great-grandfather, who was the captain of an East Indiaman. Uh, ship out there in the Indian Ocean, which he'd alluded to, but never been able to find the text of. And we we dug it up with the Foreign Office's Library and Records Department's help. And that was fun. And he was obviously very touched to have a a bound copy of this book. I I tell the story simply because I think a part of the game is to try to find something that will really give personal pleasure uh, to the recipient. Um, I don't know how they they do it with uh, Windsor Castle, Buckingham Palace. What do you do to give to a head of state who has everything, um, but who nevertheless has a deep personal interest in an awful lot of relationships and knows the United States well and has been there many, many times during her reign. I don't know. All I can say is, yes, um, as Lou says, a lot of thought goes into this. Ambassadors get consulted, um, bright ideas on a postcard, please, long in advance of the visit to try and find something which is going to genuinely give pleasure. Uh, It's hard to hit the bullseye, but when you do, it gives great satisfaction. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Patrick McGuire, I was going to ask you, but I suspect you're not going to be invited along uh, today uh, to to give a gift to anyone, having, having given your own gift to them both this morning. Well, no. If I was to, if I was to buy, if I was to buy Joe Biden, the the awkward thing is, I think the thing that would give Joe Biden most pleasure. Uh, I was thinking, what could I, you know, what could you get for him from the Sussex Biden line? But obviously, Peter has discovered the one good gift there, and obviously, the policies of this be fraud. Um, it's a shame Ireland aren't in the European Championships because that's a very easy gift. I'm sure he'd love an Irish football jersey, uh, a Mayo Gaelic football jersey. But you know, the optics of Boris Johnson handing over a the green jersey, as it were, which itself is a mess, <laughs> itself a metaphor for Irish foreign policy. I think at this time, probably not great. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.